Let's read this scripture together as we get started. Second, First uh, Timothy, sorry, First Timothy 2, 1 through 4. Timothy says, read this with me. I urge then, first of all, the petition, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good, and it pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Y'all grab your Bibles or open up the app and follow along there. Scriptures are on there. Go to the book of Jonah as we wrap up our summer series uh, this morning. Uh, Jonah's a little bitty book in your Old Testament. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Jonah. If you get to Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, you've gone too far. Uh, But you can find it there, just about a page, page and a half, maybe two pages in your Bible. And we're excited to get to wrap up as we talk about Jonah, this guy on the run this morning. So if your metric or the way that you hold a measuring stick up against a sermon is responses or repentances or visible action from an assembly of people, then without a doubt, Jonah holds the number one sermon of all time. No doubt. Nobody has preached a more successful sermon than he does in Jonah chapter 3. He has an eight English word long sermon, five in Hebrew, in which he just simply says, and I want to get this right, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Eight words that somehow result in an entire city of 120,000 people coming to know God. And what's incredible about these eight words is that it was given by our wishy-washy fish-commuting friend, half-hearted prophet Jonah. It's the briefest of messages resulting in the most incredible of turnarounds half-hearted speech that is given to a full-hearted response. I got to dreaming about being able to have that ability to orate like like Jonah, to be able to speak like him and say things. Parents, I want you to imagine this with me. Imagine being able to give an eight-word speech and getting in a reaction like Jonah. Parents, Saturday morning, it's chore time. I don't know, Friday evenings, whenever you do it, Sunday afternoons. And you speak to your kids and you say four hours more and you will see mom's vengeance. And then your kids in response never have to be asked to clean their bathroom ever again. Or wives, imagine this wives. Four more days and these clothes will be no more. And your husband actually puts his clothes in the hamper, makes dinner and rubs your feet every night for the next year. It would be an incredible response. How about this? At your job, you just walk in and you're like, I'm going to be Jonah today. And you walk into your job and you walk in by your boss and you just say, 40 more days and my salary will be doubled. And then miraculously, at the repentance of your boss, he puts on sackcloth and ashes and ups your pay. Or perhaps even you could do this in culture somewhere. Imagine going to the Wildcat football game that's coming up, the most public place probably in Canadian, and you just say 40 more days and the Lord will act and people just stream back to the Lord. 
Jonah has the most successful message of all time, while probably the text is telling us while giving the least amount of effort. And it would be great that the text, if you've been following along with us, and if you haven't, I encourage you to pick it up or just read chapters 1 through 3. It'd be great if it just ended in chapter 3, verse 10, with this nice bow, with God relenting from the calamity that he had planned and for all the people coming to know Yahweh God. It'd be a great little way to end the book. But unfortunately, probably for Jonah and I think even for us, the book doesn't end there. There's one more chapter. And the reason there's one more chapter that we're going to unpack today is because Jonah is not satisfied. He's unchanged. He's been the heel of the joke, the antagonist of the story, the butt of the joke, however you want to say it the entire time. And even after there is such a move after his words in Nineveh, he still is as hard-hearted as he's always been. So let's pick it up. We're going to read this, and I'll comment on a few of these words, but let's pick it up in Jonah 3.10. And then we'll finish it out. And notice as we go, please notice this, how odd this book ends. There is like a, it is very weird. But just notice that. So chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did, they being the Ninevites, and how they turned from their evil ways, and he relented, and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. Now the word there for wrong is evil. The Ninevites turn from their evil, and Jonah now sees their turning from their evil and God's response to their turn as very evil. Hebrew word, raw. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That's why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious, and he quotes here, Exodus 34, 6 and 7. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. And then he adds his own commentary on Exodus 34, a God who will relent from sending calamity or destruction. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah is in a bad place. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. Notice that word. There he made himself a shelter set in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. He's still holding out hope. They've relented. He's angry, he's mad, he's so mad that he wants to, he'd rather die than live, but he's still holding out, not a hope for some goodness, he's holding out a hope that there will be destruction. Maybe this will turn the way he wants it to be. Then the Lord provided a leafy plant, made it grow up over Jonah to give him shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn, the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head 
so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, for the second time, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, for the second time, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, Jonah said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals. And then the book ends. That's what you have. What a way to end a prophetic book. It is a loaded little chapter that just ends with, shouldn't I be concerned for people and animals, Jonah? Fade to black. It's an incredible thing. And we could probably take chapter four and turn it into a four to five week series, but we're not going to do that. What we're going to do is we're going to boil it down to one week and we're going to focus on what the text wants us to focus on. And you probably, if you were listening along and leaning in, you probably noticed one word appearing before all the others, and it was the word anger. The most common word in chapter 4 is this idea of anger. But even more pointedly and more importantly, it is the question that chapter 4 is about. After all this great news and good news of repentance and good news of life change, The question of chapter 4 is the one God asks Jonah. Is it right for you to be angry? See, Jonah is repeating the sins of other people in the Old Testament. The sin of Cain, actually. Is it right, Jonah, for you to be so mad? Is it right for you to act out of frustration? Is it right for you to be upset about God's favor and love towards them? Is it right, Jonah, for you to so despise another group of people that you would rather see them perish than change? And Jonah, he thinks he is justified. When he's asked this question, he thinks so. In verses 2 and 3, he says, I knew you would do this, God. I knew you would show mercy. That's why I tried to run. I knew you were gracious. That's why I tried to get out of there. I told you this already. I knew you would relent. Now, if you're not following with me, you may be missing this. And I certainly did the first few times I read Jonah chapter 4 a few weeks ago. But this is supposed to be a gut punch for us. This question is it right for you to be so angry as supposed to just get us in the breadbasket? Because Jonah is taking us down deep into the hidden places of our hearts. Jonah chapter 4 is getting into those places in our minds and the thoughts and the bias and the presupposition and the prejudice that we hold against others that we would never say out loud. And it's asking this question. What happens, church family, when the God you worship loves those you hate? 
And we could spend a lot of time maybe looking at Jonah and why he hates so much the Ninevites. And we've done a little bit of that. And it would probably be beneficial. But instead, remember this. We started Jonah, I think it was week two, thinking about how this whole book works. And Jonah is here not just to be read, but for it to read us. Remember, it's a turning of the mirror. Jonah's a mirror for us to go, is it right not just for Jonah to be angry, but is it right for us to be so angry? So we're going to turn the mirror today because we are angry people. And you may say, well, I'm not an angry person, Jake. You are, and you're right. But I'm talking collectively as a culture and as a people Part of the fabric of being an American seems to be to be angry. Anger and outrage and venom and vitriol is part of our DNA. And it's almost, and maybe I would say not, maybe almost isn't the right word, it is impossible in our world today to escape the anger of our culture to not partake in it. Have you been in a bad mood lately and didn't know why? Allison the other day was like, why are you in a bad mood? I'm like, I don't know. I just am. And we were on vacation. (laughs) We call that vacation, Dad. Our anger... The anger we experience is present around us 24-7. You don't have to look far, and I don't have to speak much about it. It's on our TV screens. It sells. They used to say sex sells. Well, that's true, but anger sells. It's in our hands on social media feeds. Anger is a contagion. We've all had enough talk about protecting ourselves from viruses, right? We've been thinking about COVID for well over two years and, and we've had no, nobody can escape it. It still is on our minds. But have you thought about this? And this has been proven by biological science in our minds, but also by social science, that there's more things than just viruses and bacteria that are contagious. As humans, we also share an emotion. We pass it on. I want to share with you guys some really interesting studies that have proven that. There's a guy named Nicholas Christakis uh, of Yale University, and he studied this for most of his life. For 32 years, three decades, he went to Connecticut and went to this one small town of over 10,000 people, and he spent time just trying to figure out what people's emotions were after they had face-to-face conversations with people at the restaurants and at the ball games and at interactions around town. And so what he did for 32 years is he documented the emotional ups and downs of this residence of this one town, and he discovered something that you probably already know, but it's fascinating. He discovered that sadness or happiness in one person did not just affect that person, And it didn't just affect a few, that given enough sadness or happiness, it ended up affecting the whole town. He made this discovery that anger and vitriol from one person could somehow infect 
an entire community of people, some who never even talked. He discovered that our emotions are shared. But what was interesting is that he only studied face-to-face interactions, and that's not how our world works now. We are more outraged than we've ever been because we also are getting all these other inputs of the contagion of anger from so many other places. A recent study, this was done just two years ago of Facebook, they changed the Facebook feed of 700,000 Facebook users. These researchers did. You may have been part of this study and didn't know it, right? You're like, well, I need to lawyer up. Well, (laughs) uh, well, good luck. All right. Well, what they did was study 700,000 Facebook users to see if we mirrored the emotions of the people that we encountered on social media. So in this study, some users' feeds were altered. Some were given more positive posts, happy, joyful, while others only saw for a certain number of days negative and hateful speech on their news feed. Now, you don't have to guess. If I polled everybody, we'd probably have 100%. Guess what happened, right? Those who saw more positive posts in return started to post more positive things. But those who only read negative things, guess what happened? They became so negative. And it didn't matter if they were people who were positive before or half full type people or pessimists or whatever. It brought them down. Why? Because anger and outrage is a virus. One more, a guy named Rob Henderson on Twitter. He has proven this, that on Twitter, that if, that if people use 15 words, just 15 words, any combination of them in any way, that if they'll use these 15 words in their 240 to 280 uh, uh, words that they get, or 280 characters, they will see at least a 20% increase in interaction and retweet, retweets with these words. Guess what the words are? Some of them are attack, blame, destroy, hate, shame, wrong, bad, and fight. Those aren't all of them. Those are about half of them. What he's proven is that what we want to share is often outrage with each other. And we live in a world that it is written into our DNA. And so we ask the question, is it right for people of the cross, Doug, to be so angry. Jonah believed it was. You guys remember what Jonah's angry about? It wasn't social media feeds, but it was viral images. You remember these from Assyria? Showed you these a few weeks ago. Stone etchings of what Assyrians would do. This one involves impaling people outside the city. They would do this as they besieged a city. They would impale people on stakes or on spears to taunt their enemy and say, look at some of your countrymen and your friends and neighbors. They would just hang them out there. Or this one that details how they would lay people down and skin them alive. See, Jonah has these viral images in his mind about the Ninevites 
So not much has changed since the 7th century B.C. Jonah is angry and believes that these people are unworthy of God's love. So he is outraged. And maybe just like Jonah, we all, if we were to kind of try to categorize this or bring this all together, is that we all have three levels of anger that we all feel and carry and wrestle with. List of some things or someone or some ones that we, like Jonah, would rather go out and sit in the shade and see if God will destroy them than maybe rather see them come to know life. And that's the challenge of Jonah 4. It's turning the mirror and it's asking us as people of God It's asking this question, who would you rather see destroyed or hurt or damaged than see them redeemed? And I want to break this down in just three ways today and then give us three alternative views, three shifts in perspective because we are angry. And I want us to ask that question deeply. Is it right for us in the eyes of God to be this angry? So Jonah, he lived this out this way. I'm sure that he was thinking about Assyria and he was thinking, I can't believe that about the Assyrians. They're evil. They don't deserve God. They're evil. They're pagan. They're violent. They're not like me. And then he probably thought, look at them. Don't you know, Lord, what they've done? They've destroyed your people. They've killed your people. And then on a internal level closer to home he also was thinking well this happened Lord they surely don't rece- can't receive your grace and mercy because I know somebody that they have hurt and I want to look at us this morning on those three levels because here's where our anger comes from and matches Jonah first level of anger that all of us probably experience at some point or at some time in our life, is that whole idea of I can't believe that. I'm angry about that. It's an anger that is directed towards a general and poorly defined that. It's culture, it's ideas, it's that philosophy, it's that expression, that trend. I can't believe Doc Martens have come back into style. I'm angry about it. Didn't we know we looked stupid in the 90s? Right Now kids are buying again. But it's much deeper than that. It's that generation. It's the level of anger that you share with people that's just something out there. It's how we speak about that idea or something or somebody we really don't understand or know. Some of us are angry at that church because they don't do things like we do. Some of us are angry about that news channel because I don't watch it. That's our first level of anger. You'll see how these work kind of in concentric circles. The second level of anger that we feel gets a little more closer to home, and this is where you need to protect your toes. It's not just that. It's them. This is where I can't just generally ill-define something, but I can now point a finger problem is just not an idea or a, or a philosophy. The problem is them, those people. 
immigrants, illegal or not, that race of people, LGBTQ movement, them, abortion activists, Democrats, Republicans, this leader, that leader, whatever it is, fill in the blank. You know what I'm talking about. It's them. Now, here's what I want to challenge you to do. We won't have time this morning to do this, but go home this afternoon and read Genesis 4, Cain and Abel, and then turn back and read Jonah 4. And you'll see that those two things are mapped exactly on top of each other. Jonah here is repeating the heart of the sin that is as old as the second sin ever committed, the sin of Cain. Cain is the first Jonah. Jonah is the next Cain in repeat. Cain sees his brother's offering as accepted and would rather blame than change. He would rather murder than be happy about his brother's offering. Than rather be grateful that his brother had grown closer to God. He'd rather murder than transform. And Cain's actions, as does Jonah, I'll just sit by this tree and hopefully God will destroy these people, is the occurrence, Cain's being the first, Jonah's being the millionth, and ours being the billionth. It's the occurrence of the sin best described as scapegoating. sin of us and the impulse in us to want to blame and shame and gaslight and accuse and vilify and demonize it's them a scapegoat is when we take something and say all our problems, all our issues are laid on them, it's their fault This country would be better if we just got rid of. I would be happy if she would get fired. If they would move away. If he would leave me alone. This church would be so much better if he wasn't an elder. He wasn't a minister. If she wasn't here. Scapegoat. And it is deep within each of us. It's an impulse that's so easy for us to adopt. But then finally, there's another and even kind of more central to our heart's level of anger, and that is not just that and them, but it's this. It's the stuff that's right here. It's personal. It's the circumstances and the things that have happened in my life that I'm angry about. It's a bad day. It's an accident that happened. Chaos. Somebody else's chaos running in and rippling into mine. And it's here in this level that we begin to just be angry about the way things are. Usually shifting our anger towards God blaming him. If this wouldn't have happened, God, then everything would be better. And Jonah, as well as us, experience all three. It's interesting that Cain, the first move he does after he murders is he moves east of Eden. And if you'll notice the text, Jonah, when he's ready for the destruction of Nineveh, back home is west. 
But he goes east of the city, further into what would be Iraq-Iran area, and goes east, further from the Lord. He wants evil, and he calls God's goodness evil. Maybe God will destroy. Maybe he'll show his vengeance. Maybe God will give the justice I want, but God doesn't. These three levels of anger at work in him, and we turn the mirror, and they're at work in us. And then we want it to be resolved, and then Jonah, the book just ends. And God's like, shouldn't I be concerned about people and cattle? It's a confusing way to end a book. But the more you meditate on it, the more you realize that there is genius in the way of ending that book. It's the genius of the text, the genius of the Holy Spirit writing this, and it comes back to this question. You're left hanging in chapter 4 because you're supposed to deal with those three levels of anger, and then you're supposed to ask the question, what happens in my own life when God loves the people I want to hate, or that I do hate, or that I despise, or that I say I wish they would just get out of my life or move on so I can get this back, we can get our country back, I can get my church back, I can get things back like I want it. And I want to just work on this for just a little bit as we wrap up. What should we do about this? I do want you to wrestle with this question. I want to wrestle with this question because I'm not up here as some righteous, got it figured out guy. Uh, but I also want you and I want myself to not be like Jonah. And so we can shift our perspectives. And so very quick, I want to show you three shifts in perspective. Instead of us being people that say, I can't believe that cultural anger, what if we instead started to say, look at that. Look at what God can do. Our anger towards outsiders is displaced by gratitude, awe, and wonder and knowing the hand and the power of God. See, Jonah wanted to see the power of God displayed, and he did, right? He just totally missed it. He saw the best part of God being displayed, and he was like, I didn't see you move, God. You're supposed to destroy this. You're supposed to get rid of that person who doesn't agree with me doctrinally. You're supposed to destroy that, that guy over there. Instead, God was waiting for an interceder and said, let me show you my power. I will change lives. See, guys, God's greatest miracle is, cha- is, is in changed lives, right? So instead of us going, I can't believe that, what we need to start doing is changing our perspective. Instead of seeing all that is bad, we need to look out and see all that is God is doing that is good. It's called being aware of his presence. Look at that. And by that, I mean look at the hand of God, the love of God, the working of God. Look at what he's doing. And then for a second level, where we blame people, instead of us saying, well, they're at fault, them, it's them, we need to start going, look at him. Shift your view. We started with First uh, Timothy 2, 1 through 4, in which Paul says to Timothy, pray for all these people. Why? 
He doesn't say pray for people in authority so you can get the people you like in authority like America does. He says pray for people in authority so that people can come to know Jesus, right? Particularly those people. Second Peter says the same thing. Writing to a people in exile, writing to a people who were surrounded by Rome, Babylon, a horrible culture. Peter says this, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. And we all say amen. Because <laughs> I, I think I understand slowness, right? Instead, he says, the Lord is patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So what's God's perspective with the thems in our life? See, when we shift our perspective, instead of looking out there and saying, it's their fault. This place is bad. They took God out of the school system in the 1960s. I got a little word on that. Nobody can take God out of anything. So stop saying that, Christians. <laughs> okay? God can't be taken out of anything. Right? We have followers of Jesus right here on the first front rows that every time they walk through the halls of their school, God is with them. God did not get taken out of schools, right? Okay, editorial over. All right, let's stop saying that. <laughs> All right. What we've got to do, though, is turn our hearts towards him. God made the Assyrians. God made your enemy. God loves the Assyrians. God loves the Ninevites. God loves your enemy. And it's not that for so, so God so loved me, it is for God so loved the world. And so we shift our perspective from it's them to I'm going to look at him. And finally, instead of us being angry about our circumstance, we need to turn, and this is what I mean by this, is saying instead of going, this happened, turn our perspective and say, look at what God has done among us. When your circumstances weigh you down, we have this great tool at our disposal. And that tool is Christian community. Man, there are miracles in this room. Amen, church? Ronnie and Libby, thinking about Luca down in, down in the, uh, the global south in Nicaragua, right? About how his skin was healed, right? Looking at the Needhams, right? I mean, we're thinking about miracles around us, not just in healings and things like that, but miracles in life change. Back there, did you know we didn't have a single baptism picture up on this, this uh, right behind Dusty's head back there, <laughs> Dusty Billings? We didn't have a single baptism picture on that wall back in June. But look at what's happening among us. Eight of our teenagers have come to Christ this summer. All these things have turned red up here, right? Connections are being made. Lives are being changed. So when I'm down about my circumstances or when I start to think, man, God can't get me out of this, get involved in a small group. Come to men's supper tomorrow night. Go to the ladies' uh, what? 
if gathering. I couldn't think of the word if. I wanted to say Eve for some reason. I don't know. Anyway, if gathering. Man, what is wrong? I've been on vacation. Um, if gathering. And hear the stories. Look at what God has done in us. Finally, this is a guy named Gordon Wilson. Not a great picture of Gordon, but he's not dead. He wouldn't care. Or he is dead. He wouldn't care. <laughs> Gordon Wilson is a, and was a, a statesman and leader in Northern Ireland. And many of us probably don't remember much of this. There was some movies made about it. Uh, but about 30 years ago in Northern Ireland, IRA, Independent Republican Army, was terrorizing Northern Ireland. And on the morning of November 8th, 1987, some people in this town that Gordon Wilson lived in had gathered to remember and honor the lives lost by veterans in World War I and World War II. In England and in Ireland and in Scotland, that's called Remembrance Day. It's like our Veterans Day. As they gathered that morning, the IRA had planted several bombs around the city, around this city square to go off at a certain time. When the bombs went off and exploded, near Gordon Wilson, a three-story home and building fell on top of him. Eleven people were buried in the rubble. Dozens were injured. Eleven were killed. Gordon Wilson survived, but by mere inches, because his 20-year-old daughter, Marie, who was holding his hand at the time, did not make it. She was crushed. As they lay trapped under the rubble, her last words to him were, I love you, Daddy. About two days later after this happened, this was again 1987, Gordon Wilson was interviewed by the BBC and as much as things could go viral in 1987, this did. His words and what he said in this interview captured the attention of the entire world. A writer at the time wrote about the interview about Gordon Wilson and said this about him. This is so good. I want to just read these words said, no one who heard Gordon Wilson will ever forget what he said in that interview. The grace he held for the people of the IRA towered over the miserable justification of those bombers. Gordon Wilson, speaking from his hospital bed, describes his last conversation with his daughter, saying, she held my hand tightly and as hard as she could. She said, Daddy, I love you very much. Those were her exact words and the last words I ever heard her say. And then in the interview, to the astonishment of the listeners on the BBC, Wilson added these words, who, by the way, was a devout follower of Jesus. He said, I will bear no ill will. I will bear no grudge. 
As hard as it will be for me to do, bitter talk will not bring my daughter back to life. I commit tonight. Here's what he said from his hospital bed. I commit tonight and every night to pray for the people who did this. May God forgive them. Another author about Gordon Wilson said this. No words in more than 25 years of violence in Northern Ireland had such an emotional and powerful impact. Now the story even gets even better. One year later, on the next Remembrance Day, people gathered again to remember the veterans of World War II and World War I. But unfortunately, there was another holiday added to that city, and that was to commemorate and remember the victims of the IRA bombing. Gordon Wilson was actually the one in charge of planning this commemoration. He'd been asked to put it together, so he did. And this commemoration was unlike anything else because they built a stage and then Gordon Wilson spoke and then the people that he had up on stage with him were members of the IRA. He invited them up on stage so that they could hear the stories, so that they could understand what violence had brought to the world and so that they could understand also what it looked like to be forgiven. As news stations gathered around, he went up to the mic and he publicly forgave them for killing his daughter. And he begged them, using the words of Jesus, to stop using violence, but to overcome not evil with evil, but evil with good. That's an example of somebody who had every right to be angry. Angry at that, angry at them, angry at this. But instead of holding on to his anger, he decided to hold on to the cross. And Doug, you couldn't have put it better. The cross changes everything. And what Jonah could not see because of timeline, but what we can certainly see with 2020 vision is that we come to the cross. We are people of the cross. And the church is not built by power or authority or institutions. I wish the church would learn that. I wish I would learn that. The church will not be built by our angry anger and our vitriol towards culture. I don't know of anybody that's ever repented because we stood out on a street corner telling people how terrible they are. But the church is built by who people who accept the invitation of Jesus when he says, come follow me and pick up your cross too. The church is built by cross-carrying Christians. May we be those people. If you need anything today, we're here. Let's stand together and praise God for his goodness.